Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. This morning we're going to be looking at the fifth of the doctrines of grace. It will probably take us two weeks, maybe three, or a couple of months to get through this particular doctrine because it really is, in so many ways, a summation of everything that went before. If you agree with everything that we've taught so far and understood so far about man's natural depravity, God's sovereign election based on nothing other than his own good pleasure, if you agree that Jesus came to the planet and that he died, but that he died for particular people, and that the grace of God in giving his son in order to save those people is irresistible, well, then it's just a foregone conclusion that those people, despite the circumstances of this life, despite what might happen to us, what difficulties, what trials, what we go through, nevertheless, we are going to persevere in the faith because, after all, the faith itself is a gift, as we saw last week. And since it is a gift from God, who is in the process of saving that person, that person will indeed persevere in that faith to the end of their life. And so the fifth of these doctrines is perseverance of the saints. That is the P in the tulip acrostic. Now, I don't know if you recall a couple of months ago, but when we introduced the Synod of Dort and I told you what the arguments were that the students of Jacob Arminius brought to the Synod, one of their arguments, consistent with human free will, was the notion that you could not only deny the grace of God, you could not only resist the grace of God, but then if the individual human had that kind of power, that kind of freedom to decide not to be saved, well, then he would never really lose that ability to say that he didn't want to be saved. So even if he did go through a portion of his life where he could be identified as a saved person, it is still up to him to decide whether or not to stay a saved person, and he could at any point in this life lose his salvation by his will, by his actions, by his determination. That's the fifth of the Arminian points. And so naturally, those who argued against the Arminian points would argue, no, it's not that you can be saved and lost and saved and lost many times in this lifetime. Instead, it is that you will remain in the faith and you will persevere. We've all had the experience of knowing people here even at GCA in a little church tucked away in a suburb of Smyrna, Tennessee. We've seen people come through the doors who have given every indication that they are part of the faith. 
Now, some people have left GCA, and I'm not necessarily discounting their faith just because they're not here, but there are some who are not only not here, they're not anywhere. They're not worshiping God anymore. They're not praising God. God is not part of their daily life, and in fact, several of them that I can think of, I could even name by name, have completely apostatized and are now chasing after the things of the world. So that is a real experience. When you see that happen, what are you going to say about it? Does that mean that they were saved for a little while? When they were going to church, when they did care about the things of God, were they saved during that time, and then later they became unsaved by their own determination? They decided they weren't going to be Christian folk anymore? Is that up to them? Well, biblically, the answer is no. John says they went out from us because. And when he says us, he means us, the church, not GCA in particular. He means we, the Christians, the body of Christ. They went out from us. They are no longer part of us. And that made manifest that they were never of us. And so the biblical argument is, if it is God who is saving people, God does not lose people, and if people make a profession and then fade away from that profession later on, that is just sure evidence that they were never really truly saved to begin with. We who believe Reformed theology, who teach sovereign grace theology, which can become a rather intellectual exercise, we who know it and teach it, see people who become attracted to the theological, intellectual side of sovereign grace theology, and therefore they join churches that advance that kind of theology, but that theology has only filled their head and never made it down to their heart. Their behavior didn't change. The way that they approach other people, the way that they care for other people, their devotion to the church itself hasn't changed, but they enjoyed the intellectual side of being part of Reformed theology. And so we who teach Reformed theology have to be very careful that it doesn't just become an intellectual exercise. It also has to be something that changes people inwardly, that draws people to the things of Christ, and that that is demonstrated by the way that they live their lives. If somebody appears to be attracted to the things of Christ, and then they walk away from it, disappear from it completely. That is just evidence that they were never saved by a sovereign God who doesn't lose people. The very fact that they've gone away from the faith is evidence that for some reason, they were the motivating factor. They decided to be part of it for whatever satisfaction they got out of it. But when that satisfaction disappears, so do they. People who are actually bought by Christ, who are actually determined by God, people who are actually saved and regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, those people will persevere in the faith. 
And that's the fifth of these doctrines of grace. Now, let me make a quick distinction because oftentimes when people are talking about the perseverance of the saints, what they are actually describing is eternal security. Eternal security and perseverance of the saints are actually two separate things, but they're so similar that it's easy to get them confused. So let me see if I can create two categories here. And then as we talk about the perseverance of the saints, we are going to talk about both perseverance and eternal security because they are both part of it. From God's perspective, God who has all power, God who is doing the saving, God who sent his son, God who sent his Holy Spirit in order to secure particular people for all eternity, from God's perspective, those people are eternally secure. Regardless of what happens in this life, even though they may be regenerated at any part of this human existence, and then they have to walk out the rest of their life on this sinful planet, even as they go through the difficulties of this life, nevertheless, they are eternally secure because God who saved them doesn't change. So we'll look into that. But the Bible also says that saints will persevere. Those who are saved by God will indeed persevere in the faith all the way to the end of their life. The categories are eternal security from God's perspective that we read about in the Bible, and it gives us a great deal of hope and comfort to know that God has chosen us, God doesn't change, and we are secure in his hands. But then our side of it, is that we continue in the faith. We persevere in the faith. And by the way, the word perseverance is not by mistake. There are going to be difficulties. There are going to be hardships. There are going to be things that would draw you away from the faith otherwise and that have shipwrecked many people through the years. But those that are bought by Christ's finished atoning work, those people who were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, those people are going to endure the hardships, and then they're going to continue in the faith nevertheless. So perseverance is our continuation in the faith, encouraged by the knowledge, the theological and doctrinal knowledge, that we are eternally secure. See the difference between those? Now everybody make this hand motion. <laughs> For instance, in Matthew 10, we read, you will be hated, this is Jesus speaking, you'll be hated by all because of my name, but the one who has endured to the end will be saved. Jesus used that language of endurance, perseverance. And he already told you why you were going to have to endure. You're going to have to endure because the world is going to hate you. The world that hates Christ is going to hate those who belong to Christ. That means that you're not going to be popular in this lifetime. There's a quote from John MacArthur that I like. Years ago, he said, you can be popular or you can be right, but you can't be both. If you're going to be an adherent to everything the Bible actually teaches, 
then that's not going to make you popular in this world. And because our natural tendency, our egocentricity, is to get people to like us, the tendency is going to be, the temptation is going to be, for us to change our ways or change our testimony or saw off the rough edges of Christianity in order to make it more palatable to this world. And Jesus says, what we actually need to do is to persevere in the faith, to endure the difficulties, endure the hardships, and stay in the faith. The one who stays in the faith till the end will be saved. Jesus himself said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Well, if you're anything like me, you would prefer that people speak well of you. But Jesus said, woe to you when that happens, because he recognizes that if everyone is speaking well of you, if the world is approving of you, if everybody thinks you're just great, you're doing it wrong. You're not walking out your Christianity in a way where the world actually recognizes who you are and what you're about. You're keeping your Christianity hid, which is why he used phrases like, you don't light a torch and then hide it under a bushel basket. He was saying you don't walk out your faith in a way that's so hidden that the world can't see it. You walk out your faith in such a demonstrable way that it brings light to the world. So when you do that, it's going to bring difficulty. The difficulties of this life will help determine those who are enduring and those who have fallen away. So the difficulties are on purpose. God designed the difficulties. God designed the hardships of this life to build your faith so that your faith becomes stronger and more secure. Your dependence is more on him and less on yourself or on this world. And he designed it that way. Matthew 24, 13, Jesus talking about the things that are to come after his apostles have asked him. What are the signs of your coming in the end of the age? In the midst of describing the terrible things that are coming on the planet, the things that we call the great tribulation, in the midst of that, he says, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So whether it's hatred from the world or whether it's the difficulties and the tribulations of this world, Jesus still put the emphasis on enduring, persevering, holding on to the faith regardless of the circumstances. James picks up that very idea in James 1.12 and said, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James then inspires perseverance by saying, keep remembering what the end game is. Remember what the end result is. The end result is God himself is going to give you a crown, a victor's crown, which the Lord has promised to all those who love him and who endure the hardships of this life. It is the hardships, it's the tribulation, it's the hatred that makes people turn away and say, well, then I'm not going to be part of this anymore. 
But those hardships, those difficulties, those trials, those tribulations are all designed by God for the purpose of building you up in the faith so that you will endure in the faith because after all, if he's the one who saved you, if he's the one that chose you, then he is also the one who is going to give you that positive, reaffirming confidence through all these difficulties. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm still introducing, by the way, this doctrine argues that the people of God are the ones that he has chosen and redeemed, and therefore they are going to remain faithful to the very end, to the end of their life, to the end of the tribulation, to the end of the difficulty, to the end of the trials, indeed to the end of their very last breath. They're going to remain faithful. They will not fall away. They will not refuse Christ. They will not change their minds, and they will not quit their profession of Jesus. So one more time, as we've been looking through these doctrines, we have said repeatedly, it comes down to who decides. Who has the choice? Is it the will of man, or is it the will of God? Because if it's God who is sovereign over all things, the one who has all power, If it's him who decides, then you're going to be fine. You're going to persevere. You're going to end up exactly where he predetermined you were going to end up. If it is up to you and your will, then as soon as the difficulties, the trials, the hardships of this life do occur, you're going to say, never mind, this is too hard, and you'll go back to your sinful ways. God, by his grace, didn't leave it up to you because he knows if he left it up to you, You'd mess it up. You'd blow it because you're just so very you-ish. This is God's enterprise. That's what we have to remember. That's why I've been stressing for the last few weeks that our whole reason for existing is to love and glorify God. We exist for his glory. And since it's God's enterprise, well, then it's kind of a foregone conclusion that saved people are indeed going to persevere in the faith. Because if they fell away, that is not just their failing, it's God's failing. God did something wrong. God chose the wrong person. God changed his mind. And as we continue looking at this, we're going to look at the absurdity of the idea that God changed his mind or had to admit that he made a mistake. Because to lose somebody who he exerted his power to save, he would also have to exert that much power to unsave them. So it's still God's enterprise. Part of this conclusion, as I've already mentioned, is eternal security. And the more we understand about everything Christ has actually accomplished and how the Father accepted that finished work in our place, the more we understand that the sin debt is utterly, totally, completely paid, the more we understand that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to our account, the more we understand the depth of those doctrines, the more we understand how eternally secure we actually are because our eternal security is not based on us. It's based on everything they did. If God saves you, this is really what it comes down to, if God saves you, you're saved. 
if you save you you won't be able to persevere you won't continue in the faith if you're the one who for whatever reason became attracted to the idea of Christianity and or church and therefore you played at it for a little while you won't endure you'll give up at some point one more thing long as I'm introducing there is this idea called once saved always saved and I want to make a distinction a difference between eternal security and once saved always saved usually when I hear that phrase used when people say once saved always saved what they're referring to is an errant teaching within the church that says that you can make a profession of Christ at some point in your life and then once you have made him Lord and Savior in fact there's even an argument a debate about that you can actually just make him Savior and not make him Lord say some people which is why you can make him Savior guaranteeing that you are saved but he's not the Lord of your life therefore you don't act like you're saved you make him Lord later on in your life after you've walked with him for a while of course the Bible says nothing like that but the idea of once saved always saved is that if you made Jesus Lord and Savior at some point in your life at that moment you were then guaranteed salvation so that later in your life if you fall away if you go back to your old ways if you continue living like the devil you're still saved because once upon a time you made that profession and when you made that profession that obligated Jesus to be your Lord and Savior therefore he's going to save you regardless of whether you continue in the faith can you see now why that's an error that's taught in churches in order to give people hope about their erring loved ones well you know he used to be in the church well you know he did make a profession well you know he was baptized as a child therefore you can have confidence that even though he died cursing God you can you can believe he went to heaven that's man-made teaching for the purpose of bringing some kind of hope and confidence to erring Christians but it's just not biblical and I argue that we have to make sure that our standard in all things God in all things Christianity that standard has to be what the Bible says and the Bible says you either persevere in the faith or you don't and if you don't it's because you were never part of us from the beginning so perseverance is vitally important not only as evidence that you are saved but perseverance is the demonstration that God is working in you and through you and Almighty God is empowering you to continue in the faith you see the difference between that and once saved always saved I'll tell you a quick story you want to hear a quick story yes I actually went to visit a woman in a hospital her sister was with her in the hospital room and the woman was dying and uh, she said that she said well I know when I was a little girl I went to church and I went up to the front and I made a profession and so the pastor told me I'm saved and I 
And I thought, this woman is dying. This would be a good time for her not to trust in herself. This would be a good moment for her to understand that it is God's grace that saves. So I attempted to tell her that. Her sister grabbed me, took me aside, and said, don't take away the only hope she has. I said, no, I'm trying to give her the only hope she could possibly have. And I was banished from the room. People like the emotional idea that they did it. I did the thing. I did the practice. I said the thing. I said the words. I made him Lord and Savior. Therefore, I'm secure. I'm saved. I'm going to be okay. But unless you know that your salvation is based in and utterly completely purchased by Christ and God and has nothing to do with you, unless you understand that it is completely a matter of almighty grace, then you're fooling yourself because you're hoping in your flesh. And what we know for sure is no good thing resides in your flesh. You knew that we would get to Romans 8 again at some point in this discussion. We're going to get there a couple times today. But for the moment, I just want you to think about Romans 8.28 and think about what this is really saying from the perspective of perseverance of the saints. Romans 8.28 says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. If that is true, then the circumstances, the trials, the difficulties of this life also fall under the category of the all things that are working together for our good. That means that the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations of this life have a purpose. God does everything according to his purpose, And according to his purpose, he's bringing these difficulties into your life. If you've been called by him, you're going to endure those things, and they're going to turn out for your good. If those things drive you away from Christ, then they're not doing you any good. What they're doing is sorting out the saved from the unsaved, the truly redeemed from the people who are trying to do it by their flesh. It is the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations of this life that sort those people out. And so, those tribulations, those difficulties are part of the all things that work for our ultimate good. In what way? It builds up our faith. It builds up our dependence on God. It makes us recognize that we're not strong enough in and of ourselves, in our flesh. We're not strong enough to endure these things were it not for the grace of God, were it not for the faith in God, that gift that he has given us. If it were not for the implantation of the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to endure the difficulties of this crazy world. God's determination concerning salvation was decided before the foundation of the world. That means that nobody, no human being gets any say, we don't get any vote, we don't get any decision in the process. And therefore, if someone is chosen, redeemed, and indwelt, then they can't be lost. If they were indeed ever lost, then the eternal decree and determination of God has been utterly overturned. 
because he decided to save them. The will of the creature would then be stronger than the will of the Almighty. The Almighty decided he was going to save somebody, and then that person, by their own supposed free will, decided to deny the grace of God and get themselves lost eternally. That means that God himself was powerless to do anything about the almighty creature countering his determination. That makes no sense. That makes no theological sense. That makes no biblical sense. There's no way to make that work if you understand the least little thing about who God is or what God is like, or what grace is. Here's our conclusion. Given that each of the four previous doctrines is in fact theologically sound and scripturally provable, then this fifth doctrine is absolutely inescapable. If some dead, helpless sinners were indeed elected by God before the foundation of the world in order to obtain an eternal inheritance, and those very same individuals are redeemed and perfected by Christ's finished atonement, and the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit works efficaciously in them to regenerate their wills and draw them to God, well, then we're forced to conclude that those same individuals will certainly be saved eternally and will receive the blessings of heaven. There's no other way to see it. The perseverance of the saints is kind of a foregone conclusion, and yet it was necessary at Dort, and it's necessary today to argue this doctrine because there are so many people who still believe that you can be saved and lost several times during this lifetime and that it is left up to you to get yourself saved and then get yourself lost and then go get yourself saved again. The way Tom and I were taught it out in California, we were taught that faith is like an electrical outlet Remember this example? It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> Faith is an electrical outlet. And you're not truly in faith, acting on faith, unless you are plugged into that outlet. Now, we were taught the ABCs of faith, which were defined as action based on belief supported by confidence. There's the acrostic ABC. Action based on belief, supported by confidence. Notice the key starting word there was action. Faith was an action you did, and that's how you got plugged into the wall socket, by your actions of faith. And of course, the chief action of faith that we were taught was giving. And giving and giving and giving. And since you can't live tomorrow on today's faith, Tomorrow you have to do more actions of faith. But then you could become unplugged from that wall socket. And you could go through periods of your life where you were not acting in faith, where you were disconnected from faith. So you wanted to make sure that when you died, as you're dying, you do something that is active faith to get yourself plugged in so that if you die in that state of plugged inness, you'd be saved. 
But if you died during a state of unpluggedness, well, then you're not saved. And even back in my very Arminian days as an intern in that church, I saw a big problem with that because I thought, but you also say that it's up to God to decide the day you're born and the day you die. If it's up to God to decide when you die, he can decide whether you die in an unplugged or plugged in state. It's still up to him whether you get saved. See, no matter what you do with an errant theology, Errant theologies are never consistent with themselves. The consistent theology is this is God's enterprise. He's doing it in order to glorify himself. He does not fail and he does not lose. Therefore, he gifts you with faith. Therefore, he seals you with his Holy Spirit until the day of your complete and utter redemption. And therefore, you are going to persevere through the difficulties and trials of this life, which are also part of the everything working out for your good. So there's nothing in this lifetime that could ultimately take you away from the faith. There's nothing that can get between you and God. There's nothing that can keep you from your eternal inheritance. And that is like really, really, really good news. Because as I've said many, many times, if you're anything like me, you know your sin. I didn't mean to look right at you as I said that. But you know your sin. You know your depravity. You know your evil thoughts. You know the intentions of your heart. You know how many times you've done things like, let's go easy, losing your temper. Okay, well, there, that's a sin. Letting go of your wrath. That's a, Thinking something evil. We all do it. We're all sinners. Constant sinners by nature, by our flesh, by our deeds. We're all sinful. Therefore, it is really, really good to know that God who began this enterprise in us knew that it was sinners that he was saving. And therefore, the fact that we are sinners doesn't change his mind. Inasmuch as God has chosen some men absolutely and unconditionally, think about those words for just a moment. That's why when we talked about election, we talked about unconditional election. There was nothing you did that was so good that God saved you because you were so good. And he saved you and chose you and redeemed you absolutely because he's an absolute God. I can prove his absoluteness by the fact that he doesn't change. The Bible says repeatedly he doesn't change. If he doesn't change, that means whatever he decided and whatever he did was absolutely decided and done. It's going to come to be. That's why prophecy in the Bible works, because these are absolute prophecies. This is the absolute word of God. So even though this world may seem full of turmoil and change, it's playing out exactly the way an absolute God determined it was going to play out. And therefore, since your salvation is a result of his unconditional purposes that are absolute, then they are indeed going to lead to eternal life because it's an all-powerful God who definitely always sees all his purposes completed Absolutely. Or you have to explain how God misses the mark. How does he make mistakes? How does he trip up? 
And since you can't do that, then you have to say, yeah, God is absolute, which makes our salvation absolute. Being in that salvation is of the Lord, and there's nothing that a man does that either causes or obligates God to save that person. Nothing within that person could cause God to release him or turn him over to the forces of destruction. Just like it took a powerful, miraculous act of a sovereign God to regenerate a sinner it would equally take a powerful, miraculous act of God to degenerate that person back to his former state. Is right. But once you think it through, isn't it true? Because God does everything absolutely. So if he is absolutely saving you, and then for whatever reason he's not saving you, then he has to absolutely determine by his miraculous power to unsave you because it was his miraculous power that saved you in the first place. Every one of God's chosen elect then will certainly make it all the way to their predestined reward. It's an unescapable conclusion. The debate, as I said a half hour ago or more, The debate centers on the Arminian position that true believers can indeed fall away and then lose their salvation, which implies that a man can be saved and lost several times over the course of their life. By the way, that also continues to place responsibility for man's ultimate destination squarely in the hands of that sinner, that depraved person, that incapable rebel. That's who has control, apparently. All right, I told you we were going to look closer at Romans 8. Now we're going to do that. Because Romans 8, 29, and 30 really bring this full circle. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. You can find all the doctrines of grace right there. Those two verses sum up the doctrines of grace that we've been talking about. God chose some people, not everybody. He chose some people. Those people he foreknew individually and he predestinated them. That is sovereign election. He efficaciously called those people to himself. Christ came and died for those people. That is limited atonement. Those same people, according to Paul's writing in Romans 8, 29 and 30, those same people are justified and therefore the elector already glorified in the sight of God. That means that perseverance of the saints is a given since God sees them as already glorified. The doctrines of grace are right here in the Bible summed up in those verses. When we talk about God, as we've been talking about the characteristics of God, 
one of the characteristics that we really concentrated on years ago as we were going through systematic theology together, one of the things that we really concentrated on is God's immutability. That's a big theological word that just means God is unchanging. And in fact, I would argue that he is incapable of changing because if he changed, he would either have to change for the worse, which would make him less than God, or he would have to change for the better, which means he's currently not perfect and God because he had to improve. He's absolutely incapable of changing his mind or his direction or his decree or his intention. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. In Numbers 23.19, we read that God is not a man that he should lie. Neither is he the son of man that he should repent, which means to turn away or change his mind. Has he said it? And shall he not do it? Has he spoken it? Shall he not make it good? In other words, you can count on everything God says based on his character because he's not like us. He's not a man. How many times have you heard me say, you're not like God, God is not like you. This is one of those he's not like you verses. He is not a man because, number one, he doesn't lie, which means men are liars. Men are capable of saying things that simply aren't true. God is not that way. If he speaks, it has to be true. Jesus, when he was here on the planet and was describing what heaven is going to be like, in my father's house there are many mansions, he said to his apostles, if it were not true, I would have told you. He can't lie. Because he's incapable of saying anything but the truth, that makes him nothing like us. And therefore, when he speaks things, they actually occur. Those things actually are accomplished because it's the almighty God who says them. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We sing about that. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same, if that is the melody. Steve, don't want to hear from you. Oh, okay, close enough. Okay. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his purpose. He doesn't change his decisions. And if he did, that would be tantamount to God admitting that he made a mistake. If he ever changed his mind, he'd be admitting that the first thought he had was not a good thought, was not the proper thought, that it could be improved on in some way. James 1.17 says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and it cometh down from the Father of lights with whom James now trying to describe God, trying to describe the Father of lights, which is an, a remarkable statement. All the light that exists, all the light in the world, all the light in the cosmos, he's the father of it. He's the one who encases himself in a light that no man approaches. So in trying to describe that God, James says, well, with him there is no variableness and not even the shadow of turning, not even the slightest indication of turning, not even the little glimpse of turning. And remember what I told you the word repent means. To repent is to turn, to turn from, to turn to something else. And God is not like us. He's not a man that he should lie. He's not a man that he should repent. 
And so James says he doesn't turn. There's not even the variableness nor the shadow of turning. And of course, Isaiah 55, 11, God says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. So now knowing all this, reading all that from the Bible, I know you're familiar with those verses, and I read them all again anyway just to raise the accountability level within the room. Knowing all that about God in his own word, his own description of himself, is there any possibility that God would save somebody and then change his mind. No, it's impossible. It'd be like saying that God would fail to lift his son up out of the grave. Was there any chance when Jesus gave his body to the cross, when he gave his body to the the torturers, when he gave his hands and feet to the nails, was there any possibility, any chance that God was not going to raise him from the dead? Well, no, because Jesus walked around saying, three days, three nights, I'm going to be up. I'm getting up again. He was confident in the word of God that God was going to satisfy everything that God said he was going to do. He was absolutely going to lift him from the grave. The same God, the whole reason I said that, the same God, who absolutely guaranteed Jesus that he would lift him from the grave, guaranteed everybody who is in Christ that they are also going to be lifted from the grave and taken all the way to their heavenly eternity. All the way back in Psalm 1610, all the way back there it was guaranteed that God was going to accomplish the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, For you will not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That means that it was prophesied through David hundreds of years before Jesus was on the planet. So Jesus knew that it was the very word of God. Why am I stressing this? Because Isaiah has already told us that God said, speaking of his own word, that it will always accomplish what he pleases. It will always prosper in the thing he sends it to accomplish. Always. It's always going to happen. Therefore, when the word of God says to you, that he is going to redeem you, that he is going to save you, that he is going to cause you to persevere through this lifetime, that is an inescapable, undeniable, unquestionable, absolute, unlie from God. That is an absolute promise from God. I just invented the word unlie. So then there's no remote possibility that God's going to fail to resurrect the body of Christ up out of the earth. After all, we have the guarantee in the word and we have the actual resurrection of Christ as a historic reality. And we have the prophecy of God all the way back in the Psalms saying that he is going to do those things. Therefore, Jesus could say when he was on the planet, John 17, starting at verse 1, these words Jesus spoke and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. 
as thou has given him power over all flesh, that he may give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Okay, in weeks previous, we've already seen Jesus say that all that the Father gave him were going to come to him. That's an absolute. It's going to happen. All that the Father gives me will indeed come to me, and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Now you've got Jesus saying, all those that the Father gives me, I'm going to give eternal Life, the one who has always existed in eternity with his father, is the only one who can talk about eternality in a way where he knows what he's talking about. And he said the life that he gives you is eternal life. And if at some point you could be lost, which would lead to your condemnation, Well, then he did not give you eternal life. He gave you temporal life. He gave you partial life. He gave you conditional life. But when he talks about eternal life, he's talking about the kind of eternal life he has, the kind of eternal life that only God could know about. And he guaranteed that all those that God gave to him, he was going to give them eternal life. Why? He tells you why. Because he has power over all flesh. Since he has power over all flesh, he can then dole out eternal life to all those people God gave him. Which part of that is about you? What did you do there? Where are you included in that equation? You are just the recipient of grace, 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 that's why these are called the doctrines of grace. Are you getting tired of hearing me say grace yet? You should never grow tired of hearing about grace. Romans 5. Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than. What's the much more than? We know that Christ died as a substitute for his bride, for those that God gave him, for those who were chosen before the foundation of the world. He died for them. Paul concludes then, much more than that, since we are now justified by his blood, by that sacrifice that has already justified us, We shall be saved from wrath through him. Do you get the logic? Paul says, if the price is already paid, if the sin price is paid, if the redemptive price is already paid, if that is already all accomplished, well then, we've been justified by that sacrifice. And if we're already justified, if we're already Redeemed, if we're already paid for, if we're already bought with the very high price of the blood of Jesus Christ, well then, it's axiomatic that we will be saved from wrath. Not just the wrath of the tribulation of this planet, but we're saved from the very wrath of God. God saved us from himself. God saved us from his Wrath, And we are guaranteed that salvation by the fact, the historic fact, 
the unquestionable fact that Jesus came to the planet, died, got up again, sailed off into the blue, is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, is currently interceding for us. And therefore, Paul could say, since we've been justified by all that work he already did, well, then, of course, we're going to be saved. Of course we are. He's the one that did it all. The only way Micah could be unsaved would be if the redemptive work of Jesus that was applied to his account could somehow be completely removed from him and made ineffective so that the justifying work of Christ who died to justify and redeem Micah could somehow be utterly negated. And Micah, you're not big enough to pull that off. Thank God. Because you try on a regular basis if you're anything like Leon. If you're anything like the rest of us on a daily basis, you try. You can't do it because you didn't do the saving to begin with. Thank God. So knowing all that, knowing everything we've been talking about this morning, and I guess this really is still kind of all introducing, but I hope that I'm solidifying the case here. You have to understand that if anybody who God actually chose, if anybody who Jesus actually died for, if anybody who actually has the Holy Spirit, if any of those people were lost then it's a question not only of God's faithfulness, but his reputation. His saving power is in question. If he could save somebody and then they get lost. Would God promise his son a people, a bride, a church, a redemptive throng who will sing to his glory for all eternity, would he promise his son all that and then fail to give every one of them to him? Would God betroth his son a bride and then change his mind and not bring the bride or bring part of the bride? Here, happy honeymoon, you get partial bride. She's got pieces missing because, well, they chose not to be part of the bride. I know it sounds foolish, doesn't it? The very value of all Christ's promises to us would be at risk if any one person he chose could be unsaved. Would Jesus promise life to those who believe, just like we just read? All those that the Father gives me, I'm going to give them eternal life. We read that in the Bible. That's a promise that we cling to. Would he make that kind of promise to us, those who have believed in him, and then fail to complete that transaction? No, certainly not. If you could be lost, then you have to return to your previous state, the very state that God redeemed you from. The place that he bought you out of, your lostness, your darkness, your lack of spirit, your completely sinful flesh. He would have to return you to that if you became unsaved. 
So what could cause God to change his mind and let a person return to their previous state of spiritual deadness after he killed his son for their sake? You getting the argument? Perseverance is kind of a foregone conclusion. I'm going to read a little section from Lorraine Bettner's book, and then we're going to call it a morning. In Lorraine Bettner's book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, by the way, that book was instrumental to me in helping me to understand the doctrines of grace and recognize the truth and the value of it. However, it is a big, thick tome. It can be heavy reading if you're not of a really theological mindset. And it was the inspiration for me sitting down and writing the book by grace alone because I was trying to write a more approachable book so that people could understand the doctrines of grace without having the the heaviness of the Reformed doctrine of predestination. In that book, he actually quotes Robert L. Dabney. And in Dabney's quote, he's going to quote Martin Luther. You can't tell the players without a program. Dabney has expressed this truth very ably in the following paragraph. The sovereign and unmerited love is the cause of the believer's effectual calling. Now, as the cause is unchangeable, the effect is unchangeable. That effect is the constant communication of grace to the believer in whom God has begun a good work. God was not induced to bestow his renewing grace in the first instance by anything which he saw meritorious or attractive in the repenting sinner, and therefore the subsequent absence of everything good in that sinner would be no new motive to God for withdrawing his grace. Here, I'll say it again, just so you can get it, because it's a point that I've been driving at and driving at this morning. I said it in my own words on purpose in the hope that when you heard it here, you'd really grasp this and understand it. God was not induced to bestow his renewing grace in the first instance. I mean, when he renewed you from your unregenerate state, there was nothing that convinced him to do it. He did it because of grace. God was not induced to bestow his renewing grace in the first instance by anything which he saw meritorious or attractive in the repenting sinner. And therefore, the subsequent absence of everything good in the sinner would be no new motive to God for withdrawing his grace. Since your sin didn't keep him from saving you in the first place, your sin won't stop him from continuing to save you. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good to hold on to? Okay, I got to read here so we can go. When he first bestowed that grace, he knew that the sinner on whom he bestowed it was totally depraved and wholly W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly and completely and only hateful in himself toward the divine holiness. And therefore, no new instance of ingratitude or unfaithfulness of which the sinner may become guilty after his conversion 
can be any provocation to God to change his mind and wholly withdraw his sustaining grace. God knew all this ingratitude before. He will chastise it. He may withdraw providential mercies, but if he had not intended from the first to bear with it, to put up with it, and to forgive it in Christ, he would not have called the sinner by his grace in the first place. In a word, the causes for which God determined to bestow his electing love on the sinner are wholly and completely within God and not at all in the believer. And hence, nothing in the believer's heart or his conduct can finally change that purpose of love that caused God's bestowal of grace. Compare carefully Romans 5, 8 through 10, and 8, 32, with the whole scope of Romans 8, 28 to the end. This illustrious passage is but an argument for our proposition, which is what shall separate us from the love of Christ. Concerning the salvation of the elect, Luther says, God's decree of predestination is firm and certain, and the necessity resulting from it is, in like manner, immovable and cannot but take place. Did you understand that? That's kind of an English translation of German words. I'll read it again so you can understand. He's saying the determination of predestination that God made is a sure and certain, very firm determination, and that nothing that we do can change that. God's decree of predestination is firm and certain, and the necessity resulting from it, which is our salvation, is in like manner immovable and cannot but take place. It absolutely has to happen. For we ourselves are so feeble that if the matter was left in our hands, very few, or rather none, would be saved. But Satan would overcome us all. The more we think about these matters, the more thankful we are that our perseverance in holiness and assurance of salvation is not dependent on our own weak nature, but upon God's constant sustaining power. We can say with Isaiah, except Jehovah of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we should have become as Sodom. We should have been like Gomorrah. Arminianism, this is now Bettner writing, Arminianism denies this doctrine of perseverance because it is a system not of pure grace, but of grace and works. And in any such system, the person must prove himself at least partially worthy, which we cannot. Are you glad you were here this morning? Yes. Did you learn anything? Was your faith built up this morning? Is your confidence in God built up? If you grasp the things that I've been trying to elucidate this morning, 
then you do understand, at least to some degree, every new day I am just astounded by the grace of God, but at least you have some kind of glimpse of the grace of God that caused him to do all the work, to do the choosing, to do the calling, to give his Holy Spirit, to do the redeeming, to do the justifying, to do the glorifying. He has done all of that, and if you know all of that, then you really ought to worship him. You really ought to praise him. You can go to him with great confidence, finding Abba Father on the throne of grace. That's what we're called to. Come boldly to his throne, that throne of grace. And you're going to find your loving father there. But when you find him there, don't just jump in his lap and think it's about you. Worship that God because there is nothing, nothing, nothing. Underline, big font, large letters. There's nothing about you that made you so attractive that he would save you. Because all of this has to be about grace, grace, and grace. So that it all redounds to the glory of the one who's doing it all. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.